This is episode 23 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I have fellow equine author Joanne Varikios on the show. Joanne is an award-winning author, experienced horse breeder, accomplished equestrian competitor and trainer, Australian representative athlete, trusted health and wellness mentor, and a successful property investor. Joanne is from Queensland, Australia, and grew up with a passion for horses. Her earliest ambition was to be a bareback rider in a circus. Although she never did run off to join the circus, she now has over 50 years of experience working with horses. Beginning with her first pony at the age of nine, Joanne went on to compete with success in gymkhanas, eventing, dressage, hacking, and breed classes, as well as starting her own and other people's horses under saddle. Joanne established and managed the Highborn Warmblood Stud Farm, where she bred many beautiful horses, including her pride and joy, the licensed Warmblood Stallion Highborn Powerlifter. The horses Joanne produced went on to win both under saddle and in breed classes, including the Royal Show Championships. Joanne has given back to the equestrian world by officiating on horse sport and breed committees and working as a judge, classifier, and steward at many agricultural warm blood breed shows and equestrian events. She's an honorary life member of the Australian Warm Blood Horse Association. A freelance journalist as well as an author, Joanne has had many articles published in a wide range of Australian equine magazines and yearbooks. She was delighted when her critically acclaimed first book, Winning Horsemanship, A Judge's Secrets and Tips for Your Success, won an international award for sports nonfiction. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. Today I'm so excited to have fellow author, Joanne Verikios on the show with me today. She's coming to us from Australia. Hi, Joanne. G'day, Carly. I should say hi. G'day. <laughs> I like g'day. That's perfect. So, you know, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. We've done a lot of communicating back and forth, but it's all been, um, you know, online and digitally. And this is the first time we're seeing each other and talking to each other. So I'm so excited to meet you and talk a little bit about your world. And I think one of the best places to start is to ask you how your love affair with horses began. Okay, I think uh, loving horses is something I was actually born doing. It was just with me from the start. I never remember a time when I didn't have a passion for horses. And I would lie in my cot and tell my mother I was thinking about horses. And every chance I got, I would, you know, I would see horses everywhere. You know how when you love something, you see it everywhere. There's a horse. Can I pat that pony, you know, big rides, that sort of thing. And when I started to talk, I started to ask for a pony or a horse of my own. And then once I went to school and learned to write, I started writing notes to my parents saying, please buy me a pony or please buy me a horse. And I'd leave them around the house for mum and dad to find as much as driven them nuts. <laughs> and then I got really clever with it. And uh, 
my dad was a pharmacist and had a pharmacy connected to the house. So it was very easy for me to start putting my notes in the pharmacy so I could outsource my pleading to third parties. And his customers would find these notes and I'd have hide them under a piece of soap or especially in the veterinary section um, behind a bottle of liniment or something like that. And eventually it paid off. I think it amused the customers more than annoyed them. But uh, one racehorse trainer said that I could ride his lead pony when it wasn't being used after school. So that was just fabulous for me and a terrific start at having a, a regular ride, if you like, and someone to just give me a few tips. But the other um, man came in and said to my father, Trevor, my father's name was Trevor, this is the third note I found this month. Haven't you bought that poor kid a pony yet? Um, come to my place this weekend, bring your wallet. And so that's how my first pony, Beauty, came into my life. And I was nine years old and I was uh, just the happiest girl on the planet that day. Oh, and so inventive. I, I love the leaving notes behind. So you got your community behind you and, and eventually it led you to your first horse, Beauty, or your first pony, Beauty. What a great name too, Beauty. That was like the yes, perfect she, name. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, she came, sorry, she came with that name. A little 12 hands, three inches, piebald, fluffy mare. <laughs> so cute. We all love our, our first horses. They're always uh, there with us as we grow older and, and grow up. And, and what is so neat about this story is, you know, I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling of just being born with this love of horses. And, and, you know, I used to have a little journal where I'd, on road trips, I would write down the number of horses that I, that I saw at the window in, in pastures and keep track. And, you know, it's just sort of always there with us. It, is, it must be a gene or something that they haven't identified yet. But you... What's really exciting is your adventures with horses, you know, continued on your entire life. And, and while I was uh, taking a look at your channels and your website and, and looking into more information about you as I built the questions for our interview today, I found it very interesting that, that you've actually been a stud manager. And I know that stallions have, you know, quite a reputation. I, I, I'm so curious, what was it like being a stud manager? And like, how did you decide that that was what you wanted to do? And, and I'm curious, you know, I imagine it was maybe dangerous at times. I mean, all horses are dangerous, but these are stallions we're talking about here. <laughs> These are all very good questions. And like a lot of things that happen in my life, it, it almost happened by accident because my, the horse that became my stallion, who was approved as a licensed and breeding stallion ultimately by the authority involved, I really secretly wanted him to be a filly. It was my first foal, put my mare in foal to this imported warm blood stallion. And I had a dream of a bay filly, a big star and couple of white socks and that was what I was trying to manifest you know. <laughs> and so this colt emerged and I thought oh well he's beautiful he's a colt I suppose I'll geld him but he was extra special and from the very beginning he was one of those colts that kind of you know, I know I'm, I'm born to breed and he was very culty from the beginning so I thought well I'll give him a chance and if he doesn't pass colt selection then you know, he can become my riding gelding then, however, he did pass very, uh, very convincingly, shall we say. So I thought, okay, now I'm a stud manager. And from the day he was born, I had to learn with him and from him and fast because I'd never met a horse with him. And that 
brings me to the part of your question about what about stallions. The ones that are really stallions and born to be stallions and know it, they have this drive and this sensitivity and this, um, this presence, this aura about them that makes them super sensitive. So stallions are just ordinary horses, only more so. You know, so they've got this extra, I guess it's the testosterone, but it's also the awareness I must... Uh, I must think about foals and creating them all the time. <clears throat> and you can work with that to say, no, today we're going to just ride and we're going to a show and there will be no love here. <laughs> <laughs> so calm down. But it takes a while to get to that point. And luckily he had a wonderful temperament. He's been gone a few years now. But he lived to 28, which is a good age. That is a great age. I'm sorry for your loss, though. It's when those special horses, you know, it's like the universe, rather than the filly, planted this little colt with you, who you went on to have this amazing relationship with. But it's so hard when we lose them. I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, it was very hard. Uh, but, yes, I think you're right. It was an experience I needed to have, and it's helped me probably <clears throat> help and maybe inspire <clears throat> excuse me, some other people. So there were plenty of opportunities where I could have been hurt or killed, but I was careful and you know, wore, wore helmets and boots and things, and I was also a bit lucky. And, and your stallion, he was a warm blood, is that correct? Yes. And this is something else that I found when, when I was uh, researching you, is that you are a past federal president and federal registrar of the, of the Australian Warm Blood Horse Association. And you still continue to serve as a classifier and a classifier trainer, judge, and judge trainer, and national assessment tour. I, I mean, you've, you're doing so much around the warm blood as a breed. Um, and, and you're recognized with an honorary life membership. You know, can you, can you tell us a little bit about where, how you fell in love with warm bloods and, and, and about your love of this breed? Because, you know, the, you know I, lo I love paint horses, right? You know, it's like it all comes from somewhere. So share with us a little bit about that adventure and, and you know, your love of, of warm blood, the warm blood horses. Thinking back, it all comes down to a tiny little book that was maybe this big called The Observer's Book of Horses and Ponies. And when I was this horse-mad child, my parents appeased my needs with books, first, you know, kids' books and then more advanced books and a rocking horse and none mm -hmm. of it quite did the trick. But I read this little book from cover to cover so many times and had every breed in the world in it, just a pocket edition. And I've still got it, it's falling apart now. Oh. But if you call that research from, you know, Shetland ponies to Percherons, I decided in my pre-teen brain that uh, Warmbloods were the best horses for what I wanted, which was a riding horse to go show jumping and eventing and dressaging with. And that Tracanas and Hanoverians were my favorite Warmbloods. So there are some other breeds that at the time were quite heavy. They've been refined now. There's a more modern type emerging, but it stems back to that. And so when uh, Powerlifter's mother, my stallion's mother, was a thoroughbred mare, and I selected a warm blood stallion for her, who happened to be an imported Danish Tracana stallion. Mm. And once I was going to produce my very own warm blood, Philly turned into a cult, uh, <laughs> I became a member of the association and got involved. And I've always had an eye for a horse. I've got a very good 
sense of their symmetry and how their mechanics work because a lot of it is physics and mechanics so that a horse will basically have a long working life if its legs are straighter and you know, shoulders the right angle, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. And so I did the training with the uh, some Dutch, uh, Dutch classifiers that we had in Australia at the time who were great teachers and great characters as well. And then I classified for years and I was in demand a bit as a, a judge around local shows and as a commentator at um, the, it's a big royal show in Sydney, uh, Sydney Royal, that sort of thing. And I just accumulated more and more experience until finally I was one of the, you know, the Dutch guys equivalent. And they said, would I start doing the classifier training? So I do. That's amazing. I mean, it's almost like from, from, you know, reading that book and horse books are so important. Obviously, you know, that's why we're doing this here. I mean, look at, look yeah. at the impact a horse book had on you. I mean, it was obviously nonfiction talking about the breeds of horses, but it helped you kind of determine your path. It's almost like you knew what path you're going to take from a very young age, which is just so cool. And like you stepped into it and you, and you followed it when it came to your love of horses. And, you know, for those that aren't familiar that are listening to the show today, what does it mean to be a classifier and a classifier trainer when it comes to, you know, your breed of choice, which is the warm, the warm blood breed? What, what does that mean? Okay. A little bit of background. Um, the first warm blood stallions were imported to Australia in the 1970s. And the only mares here were, there were lots of mares here, obviously, but there were no warm blood mares. Uh, only the stallions were of the, the warm blood descent. So we had thoroughbred mares, stock horse mares. We had some quarter horses uh, and uh, a range of mixed breeds and other horses. So in Europe, they have a very rigorous system because they decided once horses stopped being used for war and for agriculture, that they would purpose uh, breed a riding horse. So they wanted to start selecting for riding horse characteristics, which is an uphill build, a tendency to engage the hindquarters, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And to enforce that, and we're talking, you know, Germany and Europe here, so they can say, all right, this is, your mare isn't suitable for breeding, yours is, uh, geld your stallion, that sort of thing. That was achieved by a classification system where objective trained classifiers would assess horses and say these are suitable, these aren't, these have faults and should never be mated to a stallion with those faults. You can give a lot of feedback. And when you start to think about translating a system like that to Australia, Australia is a bit like America, you know, a pioneering country and we're not that keen on authority and being told who will breed our horse to. So Part of being a classifier is being quite tactful because you have to, you can't make people do things like they could legislate at that time in Europe. But you can seek to educate people and you can point out nicely that, you know, perhaps their mare isn't the most perfect animal on the planet. But looking at the what we started with is the raw material then and the way the breed has evolved over 30, 40 years now, it's just so exciting because the horses are world-class. The ones produced from local, locally bred Australian warm bloods and imported warm bloods or imported frozen semen are of the same, if not better quality. And it's really exciting and satisfying to have been 
you know, a part of bringing that about. So what you have to be able to do is look at a horse standing still, moving, in the case of stallions and some, um, some mare test jumping, free jumping, mm. and you give them scores from uh, one to ten, and one basically means they don't have a head or they don't have feet, that sort of thing. So you, you tend not to use that end of the marks. but uh, And then it's calibrated to a final percentage and that shows where they'll slot into the stud book, into the head stud book, the main stud book, uh, the performance register, that sort of thing. And pedigree comes into it too. So, uh, you know, is the, there, so there is a breed registrar for, for the warm blood and, the, and this classification is part of, of that, particularly for stallions. Am I getting that right? Or they all can be classified or just the breeding uh, stock? Yeah, for me, it's principally for mares and stallions. Okay. So the breeding stock, yes. And we have shows and things for geldings, but there's not a lot of point in classifying geldings. But where geldings are great is they're terrific guinea pigs for classifier training. Oh. Because if you say, you know, this horse has a beautiful shoulder and a nice hind quarter, however, his hocks could be stronger or something like that. No one's going to really get offended unless the actual breeder of that gelding is there. <laughs> Whereas if you're talking about a horse that somebody actually wants to put in fold next season, they can be a little more emotional about it. I can imagine. And, and so how long did it, did it take you uh, to become a, a classifier? Or how long does the training take in order to, to be able to judge a horse like that, uh, you know, to, to judge its quality? I had a head start because I went through Pony Club and we learned about confirmation. And of course, I was a voracious reader, so I, <clears throat> I have an enormous collection of horse books and uh, I already knew quite a lot. But the training I did lasted, there was a hands on sort of course and classroom stuff for a, an intensive weekend. And then I had to shadow a more experienced classifier for a period of time, probably about a year. The sc your scores are compared to their scores and you discuss. Uh, things and why did you give that and why didn't you give that and did you you missed that or you saw something I didn't see you know it, it's quite constructive mm -hmm. after a while they think okay you're allowed to be turned loose but classifiers always work at least in pairs so that you know no one person can make or break a horse's future and for the cult selections uh, they're held at usually independent venues and you have four classifiers that is that is so exciting thank you for sharing all of that that's like a whole new you know world for me and maybe you know some of the people that will be listening here um and you know what's so interesting about this is like you have worn you know a lot of hats in your lifetime you're a horse trainer a breeder a horse judge and classifier a former powerlifting champion, which I really want to talk to you about, a retired government official, a world traveler, an author, a speaker, a property investor, and a holistic wellness mentor. So, so you've, you've worn a lot of hats. You know, can you tell us a little bit about your career choices and what led you to those things? And you know, like I mentioned before, I'm specifically, especially interested in hearing a little bit about your adventures in powerlifting. I mean, that that's just like, woo, right over my head. And tell us, how did, how did this occur? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I've never been really ambitious, apart from knowing I wanted a life with horses. 
nothing you know i didn't grow up wanting to be an author for instance or a public servant certainly not a public servant so i kind of fell into things i studied russian at university because i liked vodka and balalaika music and <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time but that's not exactly vocational training so uh when I started applying for jobs when I finished university. Some of my friends were going into the public service. I thought, well, that'll do until I find something I really want to do. Mm -hmm. But the public service sounds boring as, but it's actually, it offers a lot. And 32 years later, I thought, it's time to, to leave and do something else. But at that time, it went really quickly. And, of course, I was working with my horses and doing the powerlifting, and it funded, you know, setting up a horse stud and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So mm -hmm. I can't complain, but uh, it took me to all around Australia and most of the continents of the world, and I even got to go to Antarctica for work and be paid for it. So pardon the pun, but how cool was that? Yeah, so that's very cool. And I think that you shared something very interesting with me about being in Antarctica. You were which number of women to ever set foot on the continent? Yes, the eighth Australian woman. So it was early days, back in the early 80s. And that's, that's really exciting. So if you, if you don't mind, what, what were you doing in, in public service? Like what was, you know, kind of your job? What did you focus on? Well, over 32 years, there were lots of jobs. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you could largely categorise it as analytical work and management and leadership work because, let's say, the more, I won't say the older I got, the more mature I got and was promoted, uh, I had more managerial and leadership roles, so less hands-on work. But back in the Antarctic time, it was uh, the, the government, the Australian government, has a sector of Antarctica and called the Australian Antarctic Territory, with three bases there. And you have to resupply the bases and they have to be resupplied basically for logistic reasons by sea. There's some air transport now, but it was by sea then. Mm -hmm. And we would hire uh, ships from Denmark. So in the northern summer, the ships would work the, the northern, no, the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And then in the southern summer, when they couldn't operate in the Arctic, they would come down to work the southern summer in the Antarctic for Australia. And then the government decided, well, we really should, uh, or they were advised, we should build our own ice-breaking marine science resupply vessel, passenger transfer vessel. And so my job was one of the team writing submissions to the government to say we think this is the sort of vessel you should build and these are its parameters and specifications and it was very interesting again something i kind of fell into because i had no no experience as an engineer or anything else and because of the work i was doing um the powers that be said well really you'd be more useful if you actually went to Antarctica and did some marine research and traveled with the expeditioners there and back and saw how the ships work in terms of you know the laboratories and the accommodation and I said I'll twist my arm you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah it was tremendous how how neat is that I love hearing these stories of you know people just kind of following the path that appears for them and winding up you know, enjoying what they're doing, you know, it's like, and I, I love when you say that you're, you're not, you were not particularly motivated because look at all of the things that you've, 
you've done. I, I, it's like hard for me to even envision that um, because because you've had your hands in so many different cookie jars and it's been it's been so exciting and always full of horses. Like everything that you've done has enabled you to continue having horses in your life. So I wanted to circle back to powerlifting. Now, how does a woman end up deciding she wants to be a competitive powerlifter? <laughs> uh, a woman, a lot of women probably do it differently from me, but <laughs> it came about in 1985 when my stallion powerlifter's mother was in foal with him. And when she was about six months in foal, there was no real reason for me to stop riding her, but I didn't want to compete or train her as hard. So I thought I won't ride her for the rest of the, the pregnancy. She can just enjoy herself bucking around the paddock and being a mum. Mm -hmm. And so I had all this energy and needed something to do. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to the gym. I'll get fitter. It'll be fun. Keep me occupied for a few months till the foal is born. And so I started going to a gym and uh, one of the managers of the gym noticed me after a while. She said, you're very strong. I think probably all those years of, you know, lumping bags of horse feed and carrying buckets of water had helped. Sure. <laughs> she said, why don't you go in a powerlifting competition? I'd never heard of this sport. And I said, what's powerlifting? So she explained the lifts and which are, to anticipate a question you might ask, the squat, bench press and deadlift. So it's three kind of brute strength, um, low technique. There is technique, but it's not as important as in some other forms of strength sports. Uh, so she said, there is a powerlifting competition this weekend, by the way. This is after she'd shown me the third lift. And I said, oh, okay, and what do I have to do? Well, you just turn up and you can wear a leotard. And <laughs> shoes are all right. And pay, I don't know, $5. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll do this. So I went, it was an amazing subculture. I just was blown away by powerlifters because I'd never really been conscious of them before. There were some in the gym that I knew, but I didn't know what they were training for. So at this competition, I broke all the local records and I narrowly missed qualifying for the upcoming national championships. So I thought, oh, perhaps I should concentrate on this for a little while. That's so amazing. I, yeah. <laughs> and... And so, so you went on and you kept, kept it, you had all the success in the first one you attended and then you, and then you kept on doing this. And I have to ask, did, did the powerlifting inspire your stallion's name or did, or was he already a powerlifter coming out and then it kind of guided you towards powerlifting? <laughs> no, he, he wasn't born until maybe a few months after I started powerlifting. So because he was a big, strong creature and because I was getting quite passionate about powerlifting at that stage powerlifter seemed the perfect name for him but yeah, it was a strange and brief career in powerlifting but I did really well I ended up being a national champion I represented Australia twice at world championships got ranked seventh in the world twice and I had uh, state national commonwealth records and then in 1988, I retired and got back more fully into horses because by then, Powerlifter was ready to start working with him. 
that is that is so that is just really cool like i you know it's like i've never heard a story quite like that and and you know i i see you and i you know yes we're strong equestrians are very strong but you know women have we have to lift things that we don't think we can lift and bales of hay and shavings but you know i I look at you and i'm like wow you know she can lift something that big or could that's that's just incredible because you look like you know just an average beautiful woman (laughs) Thank you, Carly. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you do compete in a weight category. And so my weight division was under 48 kilos women's division. And what's that in pounds? About 105 pounds? Yeah, I, I think. So, but my best uh, lift ever, I did really get very strong when I started training and concentrating. I lifted in a competition, so it's all witnessed. 155 kilograms weighing 47 kilos so it's more than triple body weight and i think how much is that in pounds i need a little we need a little anyway (laughs) you can do the maths um yeah it's it's 300 over 300 pounds i think that's amazing and you know obviously you have to take care of yourself when you're lifting weight that heavy so i imagine you know that kind of maybe spurred you a little bit into the holistic wellness side of of what you're up to too, I would imagine? A little bit, yes. That's actually a good insight. It sparked the interest, but back then when I was doing it, there weren't, there wasn't the emphasis on wellness and and taking supplements as much. Hmm. Uh, Like my coach was always encouraging me to eat freeze-dried liver tablets and take a multi, yes. They're not (laughs) as bad as they sound, but because you just swallow them but yuck (laughs) (laughs) for sure (laughs) more protein i needed more protein (laughs) doesn't that sound yummy um (laughs) speaking of holistic wellness i love that you have um the the salt lamp behind you i have one of those Uh in my office too so those of us those of you not watching us on youtube she has a it's a himalayan salt rock is that what it is Mm -hmm. i have one in my office too i love i love mine so we have that in common not only that but our love of courses yeah, they're good things. Uh, they are. They're great. I always, I always have mine on when I'm working in my office. So you know, all of this, you know, is kind of like uh, you know, preemptive to you know, getting to now, you know, in your life, you're you still work with horses. Horses are still a very important part. You've had all these different paths of careers that you've taken on, but now you are also an author. So I would love it if you would tell us about your book, Winning Horsemanship, A Judge's Secrets and Tips for Your Success. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and and why you decided to to write this book? Okay. Thank you for asking. (laughs) So here's my book. Is that high enough on the screen? Yes. And that is actually me on the cover, but uh, it's a stock photo horse chosen by the publisher, just in terms of full disclosure. But uh, my book's part memoir, it's part education, it's part self-help. And I wrote it uh, mainly for the the growing number of horse owners who have achieved their dream of horse ownership, shall we say, a bit later in life, once they have left the family home, they've got their own money and their parents didn't buy them the pony that I was so lucky that mine did. And also they probably didn't grow up around horses like I did and with the old timers who were very experienced not at teaching you how to relate to horses but showing you how horses work and just with comments and gestures and how they relate to horses. 
uh, showing you how to how, how horses work and what works the best and it's you know I feel really lucky that I had those uh, childhood experiences at the time I just took them for granted and all I wanted to do was be with ponies but I look back and I thought I learned so much and I owe so much to so many books and so many teachers and also people who weren't so hot at horsemanship you learn what not to do as well and what doesn't work so with my judging uh, the Australian Warm Blood Horse Association has this fabulous event a national uh, tour national judging and classification tour oh. and they have usually an Australian judge and a judge from somewhere else in the world who is a very well-known horse person and the judges travel because Australia is such a big country they travel to the horses so instead of bringing all the warm bloods in Australia to Sydney or Brisbane or somewhere like that which is not feasible because of the distances you would have to travel and from mares and foals and things uh, the judges do a circuit, a month-long circuit, where they start in one capital city, they fly to another one, they get driven to the studs and sometimes to big venues where all the horses come, and, but often just, you know, to where there are a couple of mares and foals, classified, uh, not classify them, judge them, but with this objective standard and the scores are then fed into a database. So at the end of the whole tour, you have state winners, you have national winners. Mm -hmm. and it's great. But anyway, so I went all around Australia a few times doing this and I would see people who had beautiful horses and they're beautiful people, but they would be frustrated because their horse would play up in the arena and they couldn't really do anything about it or the horse would spook at a flag or something and they couldn't really stop it and they didn't really know how or the horse would get ahead of them when they were leading it at the trot and they would be close to being kicked you know if the horse wasn't a, a nice soul and I thought I can help them if they would read my book if I wrote a book uh, distilling some of the things I know not only about horses but about uh, self self development because powerlifting taught me a hell of a lot about competition nerves going to world championships I was you know, a wreck at my first world championships I was so nervous and I could have performed much better you know so getting a hold of your own emotions is important too because as you know the horses pick up on that so quickly so that's why I wrote the book that's so cool I mean and and horses you know I'm sure you combine this but like horses can be one of the biggest reflections of ourselves and what's going on with us and, and in order to communicate with them often it's like happening over here with the person and they're just feeding off of our, our vibes. Uh, one of the things your website says, you know, winning horsemanship is fundamentally a self-help book because through helping ourselves, we are better placed to be able to relate to our horses in a kinder, calmer, holistic way. Um, I would love to hear just a little bit more about um, your philosophy on relating to horses in a kinder, calmer, holistic way. Like, what, what is your philosophy? Uh, I obviously read Joanne's book because that's where you're going to get all the <laughs> nitty gritty. But can give can you give us a little teaser about about your view and and where that comes from and, and what people will find mm. when they read the book? Certainly, yes. Uh, I think it it again comes back to how I've always felt about horses. I wanted a horse as a, a partner, a willing, happy partner. I wanted the horse to be 
free of pain when we were having fun together. And not all horsemanship um, paths steer you in that direction, but it's always been at the, the base of my desire, I suppose. Another really influential book I read uh, when I came to the point of having young horses and the decision, do you send them to somewhere to be broken in? Or uh, I read this book called The Gentle Art of Horse Breaking. Mm. I loved the title and I thought, this sounds like what I want. And it was tremendous. And I used that with Powerlifter's mother and with Powerlifter and with other people's horses that I would start under saddle. And it was also uneventful, you know. There was no kind of uh, sit loose and rattle stuff. Um, you know, sometimes the horses would spook or react, but it eliminated so much of it because they understood what you wanted from the beginning mm -hmm. and that you weren't going to hurt them. And even if you were above them or on them or something like that, it was a pleasurable, safe experience. And I thought, well, that's how it should be. Um, and then, you know, I learned a lot over the years, as I mentioned, from different instructors through Pony Club, had some great Pony Club instructors. And I would also go to clinics with, a, he's an Olympic rider, they're having a clinic, go and learn how to ride jumps or that sort of thing. Um, and when I was, when Powerlifter was occasionally with stallions, going back to stallions, you will say something to a stallion and draw a line in the sand and the stallion will very happily just rub it out again <laughs> and say, was there a line there? I don't see a line. <laughs> and then you reassert your line, they rub it out. So I was having some, uh, as much mind game battles with him as, as anything. But uh, Pat Pirelli started coming to Australia and he's, as you probably know, an American uh, one of the forerunners of promoting the natural horsemanship movement, not, not uh, creating it. And I uh, went and audited one of Pat's clinics. I thought, yes, I need to get this guy together with my horse. So I brought Pat to where I was living for a couple of clinics over a couple of years and also went to others. And that turned things around tremendously. And another person who helped me a lot with powerlifter was Buck Brenneman, mm -hmm. on whom the book, The Horse Whisperer, is based. Another you know, lovely man. And through them, I learned about uh, Tom Dorrance, whose book I have, and Ray Hunt, who's also uh, written books that I have. And I had then re got reinterested in the Australian uh, forerunners of this kind of movement because there are quite a few. There was uh, Tom Roberts and J.D. Wilton and Morris Wright. And all that sort of thing gelled into my philosophy mm. and how, how it should all work uh, for the good of the horse. And also the good of the person, right? Because you address things that are going on with the person. Yeah, so you did your research. So this is a culmination of all of your experiences with horses, being a judge, working with these natural horsemanship um, stars i guess if you want to say it that way so so this it brought it all together into into your philosophy um with your book so what how how do you reach your readers um how do you share with your readers this this wonderful book that you've written and how do you get the word out about winning horsemanship how, what, what do you do anything special to get the word out how do, how do you do that i probably don't do anything special <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
like I've learned a lot from you too, Carly, even though you're in the fiction space and I'm in the non-fiction space. I watch what you do and I'm in awe with the wonderful way you promote your books and reach out to your readers and stay in touch. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for that feedback. It's, it's nice to hear somebody notices on the other side. <laughs> I really appreciate that. No, well, and and you're you. always you're always so fantastic about sharing feedback and and liking posts and letting me know you're there. That's actually how we connected, you know. So so it's a great community. We're all taking care of each other. We're all uniting and supporting each other, and that's the goal, right? Talk to each other and learn from each other and figure out new ways to reach our readers and and put a bright spotlight on the fabulous people behind all the horse books that are available in the world and all the people that love them, right? So, you know, again, yes. thank you for your gift, your, being on the show and sharing with us your vast knowledge of, of your world of horses and, and what you're up to. So, you know, back to the question, you know, do, how do you reach your readers? I, I imagine you've got, you know, different ways that you do it than I do. So I'd, I'd love to hear some of your ideas or ways you do it. I do know a lot of my readers personally through the, the Warm Blood Association because I've met them on tour and uh, you know, through classifying and working with them on committees and that sort of thing. And I also know quite a lot of people in the eventing world and other areas where I used to compete. And then I do normal, normal things like I have a Facebook account and other social media accounts. And I not only... I have my own page and promote that, but I like to join, I'm a member of a number of groups and where I can, uh, or where it's relevant, I will insert you know, a comment that I think might help people and I always have the door open for people to, if they want, uh, contact me directly, you know, take it offline, I'm happy to do that. And I have a, a couple of blogs on my website and one of them is more, uh, articles and one I, I'd like to create these original memes and sayings and mm -hmm. stuff like that so I have that as well and then I share some of those things through Goodreads and <clears throat> uh, Amazon author page uh, what else do I do that's that's about it and I when I start when I first launched the book you know I did some speaking mm. at various events that's tapered off now because my book came out in 2016 it's probably time I wrote another one <laughs> well uh, we're looking forward to that and uh you know it, that you said something really interesting because it's like it, you talk about the people that you know and, and that is always like the very best place to start because you obviously have a reputation being a judge and being a classifier and, and working with the breed the way you do and being a commentary at these these important horse shows so you start, you know, starting there with your community and, and, and talking to them about the book that you that you gave birth to. I like to call them birth uh, book babies, you know, so it, talking to your community and it's the right demographic. It's the horse community that word of mouth can help generate and, and spread the news around. So it's always starting with who, you know, you know, those are your people and then and then they share and then it kind of spreads out from there. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, and you've reminded me, I also sporadically have a newsletter. I have a mailing list and a newsletter, and uh, no one can ever accuse me of emailing them too often. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I aspire to be as regular and as entertaining as you are with yours. Oh, thank you for reading my newsletter. I, I try. Well, you know, that's why I committed to 
once a month sending out my my newsletter just to kind of you know touch touch my readers and let them know what i'm up to but not overwhelm them either so i felt like once a month was something i could definitely commit to and, and that's something that's so important as an author is um you know you choose which social media channels work for you that you have the time for to you know choose a rhythm that you can get into with your newsletter that you think you can commit to right because we start piling on so much that there isn't enough time to getting that next book written you know so so you know talk to us a little bit about i know that you worked with a traditional publisher on publishing this book can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience was working with a traditional publisher on this book and and did you pitch them or did they come to you how how did that work for you and and why did you decide to go to the traditional route okay it was it was great working with the traditional publisher a uh, really good experience and if i write another book i might do the self publishing thing we'll come to that the publisher i worked with has a really I don't know if it's a unique model, but an interesting model where it's, you can pitch them, they can pitch you, or you can work together. So we had a conversation and decided, yes, we would like to work together. And so then they took over all the normal publishing um, things, except they didn't give me an advance and they didn't um, distribute the book themselves. They got me a, a distribution contract. But in other respects, uh, they designed the cover. And that was one of the very first things I had to do was sign off on the cover, which surprised me. I thought, don't you write the book first and then do the cover? No, with them. <clears throat> you did the front of the cover, the back of the cover, the spine of the cover. And I learned it was great because I learned how important these different bits of real estate on your book are. Mm -hmm. And so they provided uh, a design after some consultation with what sorts of covers I liked. They, it was interesting. They said, send us some pictures of the book covers that you like. So I went through the bookshelf and photographed about three or four, sent them, and then they, they you know, used the similar font and similar colours and adapted it to what I was doing so you worked you know you worked with them you showed them what you like for your cover design which is really cool so you had some creative say in in how your cover turned out but you and you also decided that you were going to work together on the project so so how did it go after you designed the cover i mean you had to work on a deadline how, yes. how did that work <laughs> so we agreed on a 12-month deadline from i will write this book to it's going to be in my driveway in boxes and other people's driveway in boxes. And they sent me a little, I suppose, a cheat sheet of milestones I had to hit at different times along the way just to, to keep me honest. And of course they provided uh, an editor and a proofreader. And my goal, because I, I do like to write and think I write fairly accurately, my goal was to give these people nothing to do, but they still found things and it was really valuable. Their input was really valuable and their comments were really valuable. And the other thing that the uh, publisher encouraged me to do and which I happily did after I got over the horror of actually sharing my manuscript with someone was to send it to some uh, experienced horse people that are friends of mine and said, would you mind reading this please? And they did, and they provided some really good feedback too. So then I was able to to tweak it and edit it. And it went between um, 
me and the publisher a, a few times and then they had it all typeset. And they did good stuff. They typeset it also for ebooks, so I didn't have to worry about any of the formatting and they uh, sourced, I, I provide a lot of original photos for the book, but they sourced some others with their you know, license, um, royalty-free images that I could use, which was good. I just, they gave me some sites, said, pick what you want from these. So I did have a lot of input and I wanted it to have illustrations uh, because a picture tells a thousand words, but it's also, when I read books, you know, I always have a bit of a look through if it's, uh, someone's life story or something, see if there are photos, and I enjoy just getting to know the person a bit more. So I wanted just to give a bit of an indication who I am and why I wrote the book and the horses in my life. So, you know, it's I, what, you can't tell from just one picture what someone's journey has been. I totally agree with you. And, and what, I, what I love about this conversation is that you've always been a lover of horse books and your love of horse books is actually helping you design and write your own horse book, right? Because you took pictures of covers of horse books that you liked and you shared them with your publisher. You, you like to see and, and know the journey of someone um, with lots of illustrations inside the book if it's someone's own personal journey and you're, you're, you're following what you liked, but you know what other people had done that, that you liked and that led to this beautiful design of your book. You, you mentioned with the traditional publisher that they did not give you an advance. Can you talk to a little bit about why or, or how did that work? So was, was your revenue from book sales split with them and that just book by book sales, how it worked and that's why you didn't do the advance. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? The dis distribution contract they arranged, the distributor uh, would then pay me for books that were sold both in bookshelf bookstores and online. And the other part of my um, arrangement was that I could also sell them through my website, which you can't always do, you know, if you're John Grisham or something. Uh, so that was good for me because I wanted to be able to do that. Uh, my, I wasn't allowed to sell them in certain other places like eBay, that sort of thing. But the, the sad part is that the distributor after a year or so, went into liquidation and was wound up. And so here was I with no distribution, no income, and also my websites on my sites on Amazon and uh, Kobo and that sort of thing went down as well. It took a while to retrieve, but the, the publisher leapt into the breach and actually has now, he's, they're now my distributor. And so that's all working again, and it's working better actually because they're they're better at um, communicating than the original distributor was, and they send me monthly statements, and it's it's good. So I'm grateful to them for setting up the first deal, which seemed good at the time. I mean, you just can't foresee uh, that, and of course, I wasn't the only author affected, and I know a lot of people who you know, lost quite a lot as a result, not to mention the, the poor distributors who uh, went to the wall. Oh, and that's, that's very frightening. And that's something as an author that you have to be aware can happen. You, you are not the only one that I've interviewed on this, on this um, podcast so far that's had something similar to that happening where, you know, uh, either a publisher or a distributor or someone that you've agreed to 
sell your book through has gone under and taken the books with them when that happens, you know, and, and, and so because that happened to you, you, you said that you're more, you're kind of interested in exploring what independent publishing would look like, be, you know, to, to retain a little bit more control of what happens to your books. Is, is that correct? Yes, I think it's the, the internet and it's becoming easier and easier and there's a lot of information now about how to do it and there's all those, I haven't tried them, but um, there's software that formats it and that sort of thing, which was, and to be honest, Kelly, I really didn't have the time to, to self-publish back when I wrote my book anyway. So this um, cooperative model was great for me. Mm -hmm. And there's pros and cons to both. I mean, it, you know, it's like you got to do what is right for you because independent publishing is is a lot of work. And if you should decide to dip your toe in the pond, please do get a hold of me. I'd be happy to, you know, coach you through some of the things that have and have not worked for me because we, you know, again, authors unite, we take care of each other. Um, but I think, you know, that that's part of the thing to be aware of as an author is that, uh, you know, you can't put all your eggs in one basket or on any one platform because you never know when, you know, Amazon may stop distributing books. You know, you want to have, be able to try and have your books out there with it in as many places as you can and also have the power to sell them through your own website. Actually, that's where authors generally make the most money from their book sales. And we do not make a lot of money from our book sales, but through, you know, selling them through author events or our own websites is generally where um, authors see the most proceeds from their creative endeavors. <laughs> Is that what you've discovered? Absolutely true. And first of all, thank you for that very kind offer. You will be the first. <laughs> uh, that's, that's lovely. But yes, uh, as the, my publisher said to me, the having it in the bookstore is good for credibility. Having it on the website is where you sell your books and especially having a list and marketing to the list and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of marketing does fall to the author in order to keep things relevant and alive and in, in the, in front of people, you know, it's like, if you don't do anything, you know, there's so many books out there that people don't, don't see, don't see your books. So you have to like make the effort to put it out there and it's time consuming. Um, but there's, there's different strategies to make it not, not as difficult as it sounds enormous when you think of the whole picture, but when you take little baby steps, it's a lot easier. <laughs> So uh, given that that unfortunate circumstance happened to you with your distributor, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back in time before you published this first book? What, what would you tell yourself? You touched on it and I would get a lot more savvy about marketing a book myself mm. because we have, we have control. I had control. I could have done more. I read another book. This is an ebook this time uh, by a woman called Joanna Penn. I love her. I love her. <laughs> she has a tremendous website and very helpful. But this book was called How to Market a Book, uh, which I bought after I had written my book and it was out there. And then I didn't read it. And I read it a couple of months ago. I thought, oh, this is gold. You know, why didn't I? read this but some of the things in it are still relevant and as you say baby steps I think well I'll, I'll take that little strategy this month mm -hmm. and do this or try that but yes if I when I do it again the, I will be much better equipped and I will consider self-publishing and there's all sorts of tactics and techniques for pre-sales which I didn't 
uh, do and to, to generate numbers and, you know, maybe like my book won an award, which was wonderful for um, sports nonfiction, but it's not a bestseller. And there are ways you can mm. encourage uh, people to buy your book by getting it in front of them and make it a bestseller. So mm -hmm. yeah, there, there's lots of, yeah, lots of strategies, lots of opportunity for marketing and some of it works and some of it doesn't, but book awards definitely work. Can you tell us a little bit about the award your book one? That's so exciting. Yeah, thank you. It uh, was through an international competition run by Reader's Favourite. And you enter your book and you tell people a bit what it's about. You have to provide several copies of the book. And they uh, read it and they will provide you with a review of it. And mine came back with a five-star review well before the competition was concluded. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it will win anything. Um, but Fortunately, it did, and so I've got this little well, uh, little green seal that I can now put on the cover saying that it's a, a book award winner, and that's very cool. Well, that's very special, particularly on your first book. That should be encouragement right there for you to continue writing this series that you have imagined for yourself, and I'm sure your readers would love to see more books too, right? I hope so. And I have to express a little bit of gratitude here because it was another author who said to me, you should enter your book in this competition. And I said to him, what about your book? He said, no, mine's not really so suitable. This is about um, internet strategies and things like that. But he said, I think yours would do very well. So gratitude to, to Mark for that. Oh, and that's wonderful. And see, that's what our community does for each other. We share the knowledge. We let each other know. We encourage each other when we need to be encouraged. And, uh, you know, we're here for each other. We're, we always say we're not each other's competition. You know, when we stand together, we're stronger. And, you know, that's a clear example right there of one author taking care of and uplifting another author. And I, I totally love hearing stories like that. So in your adventures so far, can you share with us, like, th this is a question I'm always interested to hear from authors, like, what has been the hardest part for you being an author? And then on the flip side of that, what, what is the very best part of being an author? You mean apart from answering hard questions like this, Carly? <laughs> I'm here to, to get it out of you. <laughs> Challenge me. Uh, on the hard part, I'd have to say it was getting out of my own way to actually write the book. Like, I know I'm not alone in thinking one day I'll write a book. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to actually say, all right, today I'm going to put the first word down <laughs> on paper of this book because you think, who, who am I to write a book? So you've got to say, who are you not to write a book? And why do you want to write this book? And so once I've overcome the hurdle and committed to the deadline because I respond very well to deadlines. I had my 12-month deadline. I had my publisher. That probably helped me a lot more than if I'd been a self-publisher too because there was no escape. Mm. And, you know, being a, a woman of my word and having uh, this honour to fulfil, I was going to deliver a book after 12 months come hell or high water. But the best part is the, the people I've been able to help and touch through the book. And... I aim to uh, inspire and educate and entertain. 
and provide a better deal for horses and the people who love them. And when someone says to me, I read your book and I got you know, this out of it or that out of it, or, you know, it's my go-to reference when I'm training diamond or I just, my heart melts. It's beautiful. Oh, that's so lovely. And that's the best feeling. And I, I totally associate with what you said on both sides of that, that hard question I asked, you know, it's like, it's the, who am I to write this? Right. And getting out of your own way. But then on the other side, it's like, once you put that creative effort out there and you complete that book, then, you know, you, you touch people, you know, and, and there's nothing more special than having someone say that, that your book inspired them, helped them, provided them escape, any of those things. So that, yeah. that's a great, that was a great response. Um, so we're getting towards the end of, end of the interview right now. I have one more question for you. What are you curious about right now? What, where, where's Joanne heading? What's next for you? Well, interestingly, I had the wonderful opportunity of being art director for a short film a few months ago, and I had no experience with, with film, and it was fascinating to watch the, the crew assemble to do the shoot, that sort of thing. But I guess now I'm uh, curious about storytelling through film mm. and possibly even writing a screenplay or getting involved in that way. So. That's, that's what I'm exploring right now at the, the, the back of my brain, which might lead to another hat <laughs> next time we can. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say you're about to add another hat to your pile. And, you know, should, sh when you, not will, if you should you, when you take that route and explore more about film and, and screenwriting, I would love to have you back on the podcast to talk about that adventure and your new discoveries with that. because. I believe you're going to step into that because that's what's calling you forward. And you've done that so well, you know, with what you've shared with us your entire life, like something shows up and you step into it and it offers you all this opportunity. So I can't wait to see what you do in the world of film and, and screenwriting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Watch the space. Yeah. It's well, it is, it's very interesting. And I'd love to learn what you learn through that and share it with people who are listening to the podcast. So Joanne, I wanted to say thank you so much for the gift of your time today. And thank you for sharing all the, this valuable information and sharing with us about, about your book. Uh, would you let listeners know where they can find you and your books? I'll, I'll of course link to this in the show notes so people don't have to memorize it, but, but please do let us know where we can find you and your books. Okay. Thank you. And Carly, likewise, thanks. It's been terrific talking with you and tremendous to, to meet you in person because I've been following you for a long time. And as you said, we met online and I love your Authors Unite philosophy and I'm very grateful for that. My book, the easiest place to find it is at my website, which is very simply called winninghorsemanship, one word, dot com. Uh, so www.winninghorsemanship.com. And I'm also on Facebook, but if anybody looks for my name, I've got a fairly solid uh, internet footprint now. So uh, I'm easy to find Facebook, Instagram, the usual places. So I'll let people look at your links. Uh, but the website is the, the go-to place. Of course. And uh, I will also link to where you can buy your very own copy of, your, of Winning Horsemanship. Of course, buying it from the author is the best place to do so. So she makes a little extra money. But 
Joanne, I appreciate you being on the call with me today and dialing in and speaking to us all the way from Australia. And I wish you so much continued success. And thank you for being a part of this Authors Unite story because you very much are a part of it and being here today is a part of it and reaching out and, and helping fellow authors is a part of it and just writing your books is a part of it. So thank you for everything you're doing for humans and horses. I wish you the best. Thank you very much, Carly. It's, it's been fun and an honor and a privilege. Uh, I love what you're doing though. I think this series, and I've listened to not all, but some of them, uh, it's great. And it's um, really nice the way you're giving people a showcase, but I love the breadth of experience that the authors have as well. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author, who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle. <laughs>